To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are with Rachel Freeman. Rachel is the author of The Hunger. The Hunger is a book of poetry. Rachel, could you please introduce yourself? Let people know just a little bit more about your background, please. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so my book is called The Hunger. It is based on my recovery process through anorexia and exercise bulimia. I chronicled my recovery through poetry. I've been writing since I was seven. I started with short stories and then realized I could just get everything out more quickly in smaller pieces. And um, I think over the years, I've written about maybe 400 pieces of poetry. And um, that's that's just like a side project. <laughs> I also, I, I just realized um, since I'm on my work computer, it says SPED, I'm a special ed teacher. So I use this when I have meetings with family. So I work with the special needs community. My like pride and joy is working with the community of children with autism, but I have worked over the gamut of all special ed. Um, I'm both a mild to moderate and moderate to severe credential teacher. So I have had multiple classrooms. I've worked abroad in Jamaica at an all-age school. And I'm currently writing a series of children's books about hard topics because I realized that there are some conversations that need to be had with children and they're not necessarily the easiest to have that a parent has with their children. So um, I have taken it upon myself to write a series of children's books. I started with one about... Um, dealing with leukemia and cancer because I have a student who was diagnosed at the beginning of this school year with leukemia and I couldn't find a book I liked. So I wrote one um, about introducing <laughs> the idea of having um, cancer and being sick and what that means and then providing coping strategies for kids. And then um, body image clearly is, is something I'm really passionate about and working with children who are coming into themselves in fifth grade who are changing, there's been a lot of issues, especially with social media. So I have also written a book about body image and what that looks like for both boys and girls um, in fifth grade. So um, I, I'm planning to do about a series of five different books on tough subjects, including um, parental separation and also um, physical disabilities, because I work with children with cerebral palsy as well, and to try to explain what it, um, try to explain to other children that although somebody uses a walker or a different device to help them become mobile, that they aren't 
they're unique in their own way, but they are still able to be good friends and help each other and everyone can learn from each other. So that's, that's what I'm doing with my life right now. I admire that. That's a lot to take on, Rachel. <laughs> uh, let's, let's get into why. Uh, what brought you to this? So growing up, I was um in the entertainment industry i did some acting here and there i did modeling and you know i they don't the adults in those industries have a hard time remembering that they're working with children and that things that are said to children stay with them so i oftentimes had worked with um wardrobe people who asked the or who like the directors of photography would ask the wardrobe people why they put me in certain clothes and I didn't have the the body shape of like the skinny I've always been petite and athletic but I've never been a stick um except for when I stopped eating <laughs> but that's a whole other story but those kinds of um that those negative words that were said to adults with me in the room stuck with me so I think a lot of what I do is help other adults understand that their words and their actions have a lot of weights, no pun intended, on what these children, um, how they're developing. And so creating these spaces for kids to be able to openly talk about what they're going through or what they're feeling or um, what they see in the mirror or how they're processing like that their friend is sick like these need these conversations need to be had and they they're easier to uh, um there's there's so much more information out there now with the internet and social media but they need an actual person to have these conversations with and not just google what su such and such means or why they're feeling this way. They need to have those conversations and have a safe space. And so that's kind of where my career is shifting now because although I love working with the special ed community, I realize this, is, this isn't just affecting those general ed students, it's also affecting the special ed students. And to create and write these books and um, have these conversations with all students because at the end of the day, I understand that kids are little human beings. And as an educator, I know that they understand and have the capacity to absorb information, sometimes a lot better than adults do. So they just take it all in. And I think that that's where I'm at at this point in my life and why I want to continue to do what I'm doing. Yeah, well, you you have a background in sociology that you study people, you know, there's patterns, there's rhythms, and a lot of us skip over that. We just play into it. There's this vicious, vicious cycle. Talk to us about that, you know, game that we play in our own head about what is actually going on because sometimes we are oblivious to the situations we are in mm -hmm. and we play games with ourselves really yeah so that's actually a really good point and i think that part of any type of addiction um we cope in certain ways as human beings and so us 
were for, from my story specifically, it was exercise and food. And then I have friends who went down like the hard drugs. And then you have kids now who have this like complete obsession borderline addiction to social media and constantly checking their feeds, constantly checking their likes. And it's just a way to cope and escape from their actual feelings and feeling who they are. And as a social species, to be honest with you, I think all of this digital age, um, while there's so much information out there, as I said before, it's dumbing us down. We're, we're forgetting to have that human connection with each other. And instead we are connecting with this device that is providing us information. But then again, that device and those algorithms are only spitting out those same things that we're already looking up or what we're talking about because they're listening to us. So all of those things and all of those questions we have that we're trying to figure out for ourselves to become a better society we're just that's a larger pattern within the smaller patterns that's really affecting us as as society at large and I think that um again it just becomes like this coping mechanism and from a societal or sociological standpoint we're not adept enough as a community or as a society to understand how detrimental social media really is and this idea of um, information transfer because we're not having these conversations like you and I are having. We're not asking those questions like, why are we doing this? We're just doing it because we're doing it and then moving on because it's part of our everyday life. That's so important that you brought that up, you know, because there are good things about this social media and one of them are the conversations that are, we're having right now. I noticed when I first started on the internet, it was basically a toy and a game anyway. And that mentality kind of crept with us throughout the evolution of the internet. So how we act on this internet, we didn't really get a uh, education in it. No, we just here, here's this, use it. And a lot of us went, you know, and used it in wrong ways. And we see this social structure now that is so divisive because of these likes. And, you know, what we crave is what we seek. And sometimes what we need is those objections to what we think we might need Definitely. is there a way out of this <laughs> that is a <laughs> question I mean it's so funny working with fifth graders because when I was in fifth grade that's when those big apple computers came out the desktops that were like bright orange bright teal hot pink and like I like explain this to, to my students and they just look at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, you have a computer in your pocket now. Like that didn't exist. And I've recently come to terms with if social media and the internet was back then what it is now, I honestly don't know if I would still be alive because I know how I just took everything in 
but it was all those like negative, it was like, that was the start of cyberbullying. Like we had AIM, you had to yeah. dial in to get somebody to talk to you. <laughs> and then if they were talking negatively about you, you, you like had this, it was part of like that human, um, just wanting to be connected to people. So even if you knew that they were going to talk, not talk bad about you, but you were just like, oh, well, maybe the conversation will be different next time. So then you're like, you're just all amped up to, to have another conversation with somebody. And it's just like one thing after another, after another. And now it's like text message threads where all these kids are on one text message saying all this stuff, their parents aren't monitoring it. It comes back to the school administration. We hear these things that these kids are saying that are a, extremely inappropriate. B, where are they getting this language from? And like, how are certain, like they're already sexualizing their conversations. And obviously that's everywhere, but how, how is it now becoming like the school's issue before it's even being addressed in that, in that household? And it's just, to me, it's just insanity. Like it's, it's getting worse. Yeah. It's getting better. And as you said, um, the, it's in a way it's kind of like this stratification, like it's further stratifying society and you have the haves who have all this access to this technology. And then you have the have nots who are still, it's, it goes back to, um, like gerrymandering and the way that people, where they're being educated and their resources and their education, educational system, although it's the same system, but it's in a different zip code. So they don't even have like a Chromebook to do their homework on. Whereas like at the school I work at, the lower grades all have iPads that they take home where, and the upper grades all have a computer that is checked out to them. And it's like, why if we're all humans and we all are supposed to be doing these standardized assessments and we're all supposed to have these um we're supposed to meet state uh grade level standards why doesn't everyone in those grades get the same access like it doesn't make any sense and it's just further dividing everybody and then and there's like the politics and, and like it's just non-stop like things need to change in order for there to be actual change Yes. And, and, you know, you basically said it right there. People need to change and the change really starts with each and every individual being present with themselves because the world's busy and we get lost in it. And, uh, you know, that herd mentality that we all tend to get, it, we've got to fight that. And we've got to recognize our individualism and what is unique and the beauty in that, because that really is what builds a well-rounded, educated person. You start your book off with body image. It's one of the first things in there. That is so important how we think about ourselves and how we feel about ourselves talk to us about that journey in your life and what brought that awareness about that body image and how you have to maintain that yourself yeah so i mean as i said at the beginning of the interview growing up in the entertainment industry and having other adults constantly say things in front of me 
that kind of put these ideas in my head. So I've always had, um, I've always had body dysmorphia. Like I'll just say it, there's no way around it. So what I see in the mirror is not what people see. Um, and sometimes like I'll look at old pictures and I'll show it to people and I'll be like, oh, this is when I felt like this in my life. And then Vilf's comment, because in my head, it, my head is still playing that game with sometimes as, um, as I'm like trying to show somebody something and they're like, oh, you look skinny and you look skinnier in this picture. When in reality, the clothes I'm wearing in that picture are the exact same clothes that I'm still wearing. Like I haven't, I haven't grown. I, I tell everyone I peaked in eighth grade and I'm in the same size and I'm almost 35. So like, I just have zero concept um, of what I actually look like, but um body image in general, like, I think that also goes back to this whole idea of kids these days who are able to put all these filters on pictures. Like, you don't know. These kids are, yeah. are so desensitized. And then they have these issues about what they see or what they see about somebody else. And then they're constantly, like, judging themselves off somebody else. And so... Um, body image is just so important because you're taught to love yourself, but people don't tell you, or at least when we were growing up, I mean, it's starting to change a little bit depending on the communities you're in. Loving yourself means who you are and what you bring to certain things in your life. Loving yourself means also, in my opinion, the importance of understanding that you as as a human and as a spirit is different than what you look like on the outside. Like they're two separate entities. It's that Cartesian dualism. Can you be a body without a soul or a soul without a body? Like it just really just depends on how you view life. But because we live in a society that's based on beauty, based on diet culture, based on plastic surgery, that's the number one priority for most people. So it makes sense that body image for a lot of people is a huge problem because they're taught that their body's the most important thing. Whereas that's actually in reality, your body doesn't justify or doesn't make you a better person, a better friend, a better colleague, a better, whatever, better athlete. Like, yes, if you take care of your body and you're an athlete, that's very helpful, but it's all connected. And so it's not just about what it looks like on the outside. So you can be an amazing athlete, but have all these negative thoughts about yourself and that's going to affect your competition. So you really need to understand it's from the inside out. And as cliche as that sounds like that is what it is. And I always feel the most connected to myself when I'm in these interviews and having these conversations because I feel like my authentic self is coming out and it doesn't matter what I look like on the outside because I'm literally just putting myself out there. And I'm like, I, this is the most free I ever feel is when I'm having conversations like this. And that's a wonderful feeling too, because, you know, actually it's interesting because we know that's what matters the most and that's what comforts us. And Every time I can get into a personal talk like this and just let it go, I feel great, you know, because somebody's going to get something out of this, whether it be me, you, or one of our listeners. And that's something that's unique. And a lot of people 
miss that in itself. Just a conversation and understanding each other can build you. And I suffer from this body image myself, you know, the lack of understanding who and what I truly am. And I sometimes lean on what others think about me to identify who I am. And that's truly not who I am because when my heart bleeds, nobody knows it but me, you know, and I can either show it or I can rough up and hold it in. It's all based on that upbringing and how we were raised and structure. A lot of this is subconscious to us and it just happens. Something triggers us. I call it trigger points, you know, and how, how do we identify our trigger points so we can help calm them before they snap us off? Yeah, I think it's it's about boundaries and like understanding what, that your needs are just as important as everybody else's. And I have found within the last year or so, like COVID has really helped me understand like seeing things for what they are and not what I think that they should be and allowing myself to accept that it's okay to ask for what I need because for so long I've been a people pleaser and have been like, yes, um, I'm going to appease what you want, but I'm going to, even though it doesn't feel right to me, I'm going to keep doing it, which all that's doing is stuffing down those issues, making me feel more uncomfortable about who I am because I'm not doing what feels right for myself and just asking for what I need. And like most recently I had um, a conversation with a family member where I had to say, this triggered me because you didn't ask if I was available to do X, Y, and Z. Instead, you just bought tickets for this, assuming I was available. Yes, I'm available, but that's not the point. The point is you didn't ask, like the human condition is respect me, respect my time, and then I will respect you too. But I felt like I was being completely disrespected because it was assumed that I was going to be able to just do this thing or drop what I needed to do because somebody did something nice for me, but it wasn't asked. Like it wasn't, it was like, yes, I was thought of for something that was supposed to be a gift, but I wasn't, it, it was, it was like a given like, oh, she's not going to be, she's going to be able to do this because it's something she, she enjoys. Yes, I enjoy it, but I enjoy it more when I'm respected. So I think setting boundaries is super important and it's hard and it's hard in the, it's really hard in the work environment, especially when there's like a hierarchy of people, somebody who's above you or an administrator or a boss, and then you want to do what feels right for you, but then you know that there's all of these other things that are above you that could really affect either where you are currently in your job or where you want to be in your job based on the decision you make. And there's just so much red tape and people just really can't be who they are because it's it's a bureaucracy. Like so much of life is a bureaucracy. Even, yeah. even though it shouldn't be that way. Like if we're there for kids, we should be there for kids. We should all be on the same team and people should understand. Like, I, I, I'm just baffled actually that we, in Europe, they give mental health days. 
we don't like we need at this point where our society is like it should be known especially in like the teaching profession and education the adults are expected to provide all of these self-help and social emotional learning skills to the kids but in turn we don't get them we have to be able to cope and teach the coping mechanisms we're doing on ourselves to get through the day the weeks and the months until we have long breaks is what we need from our either our union or our um, administrators like if they're expecting us to teach these kids these things they need to provide them to us too like how fair is that so it's just this whole bureaucratic system yeah and that that really drives how we think and you know that limits us how we think a lot of the times because that herd mentality again we we don't want to go against the grain because we know the consequence to that and sometimes you need to stand up and rough the feathers man because our society is hurting right now and a lot of these uh blames and these hurts there was not an owner's manual given to me in life and all of these bombardment of feelings emotions and uh structures that other people said this is how you have to get out of it this is how you have to deal with it this is how you have to reharmonize i i think you have to bust and shatter all of that and discover your world for yourself and when we find our uniqueness in our oneness will thrive better together because we will understand there's a unique perspective in everybody. And I don't know if we've ever really truly had that thought pattern and that rationale to our society where everybody truly matters because there's always been limits and, you know, points to be made or money to be made and a lot of this body image is money you know the cosmetic industry it it blew me away the other day i was on an interview and we were talking about the cosmetic industry they're not regulated and a lot of these poisons that we're just putting on ourselves we really have no idea what it's doing to us. So how, how we can allow society to bend us and structure us in this Stanley Milgram did a experiment in the 1960s about authority and power and what you will actually do if a white coat or a person of authority tells you, you have to do this, you have to do it. Well, that takes your own personal responsibility and throws it out of the window the moment you go beyond what you recognize as something being wrong. So I highly recommend people looking that experiment up and thinking about it a little bit. Let's get into your book of poetry, because poetry is something unique. It's short stories basically and a lot of people don't understand poetry 
what drives you to write poetry like this? I mean, it's really what you just said. It's it's a way to write short stories and get it to the point. Um, I think I am very fortunate that I've been gifted with this ability to not only write poetry, but write poetry that rhymes. Like I would say 98% of the pieces in my book rhyme. And uh, it's one of those things like I'll be driving and something will come to me and I'll speak it into my note section in my phone and I'll just keep going. There's often times when I'll be sleeping and something will happen in a dream. And I always tell myself, wake up and you need to put this on paper. But like, I always forget. Um, it's just been since I was, since I was a kid, I've, I've had all these ideas and things that have been inside of me. And then I realized, especially going through recovery. And then within the last 18 months of COVID, like so many people have this, have similar experiences, but aren't, sure how to talk about them. And so I, I was just like, I need to get this out. And funny story is I had written this book about 10 years ago and the December before COVID, when everything closed down, I was asked to publish it by a publishing company. And right after it came out, the publishing company went under but I knew like it was, it was up, up on Amazon. So during COVID people were able to buy it and people were able to get it on um, Kindle and it helped people during COVID. Like it was supposed to be out at that time, even though the company went under, I still had those words out to help people. And so I was more afraid 10 years ago to put it out because I didn't want my family. I was trying to protect my family from what I was dealing with. So I didn't want them to be like, oh my gosh, like, I mean, it's a completely raw portrayal of things that I was dealing with. And I, I didn't hold back. Like there are some things that like it, there were times when I didn't know if I was going to wake up in the morning because my heart would palpitate and I wrote about it. And it was, it was, this is literally my diary of a year and a half of recovery. And what I take a lot of pride in, in it is it's not just about body image, but there's five different chapters and it's like body image, um, societal issues, religion or spirituality, um, career, still like being career driven, even though I have all this stuff happening within me and then addiction in general and what addiction in general looks like in society. And I just, it kind of just all came together. I mean, there were, there were some pieces that I wanted to put in that I didn't put into the book because I was still protecting I still have this feeling like I need to protect certain people in my family and certain things can't be out there. Um, but I, ha I, I have enough poetry to actually write or publish two more books. Um, and that's just not what where I'm at right now and what I think is important for my story to be out. So um, when it comes to this poetry, some of some of it actually had been written prior to my recovery. I had been really getting more involved in writing poetry starting in high school. Um, a good friend of mine and I, we were like, we're going to start a band. We're going to be like a beat generation, a beat poet band. And she played the drums and I would like talk over on the mic. And it was like, it was crazy. And it was weird. And it was amazing. Like we loved it. And she was my 
she's still very close to me, but she was like my like through and through person. Like since I was little, little, like a year and a half old and she got into heroin and like, um, the addiction, a lot of the pieces in my addiction chapter were kind of inspired by her story and things about what, um, like experiences I had with her. Like there's a, there's a story or there's a poem called track marks. And it's literally about a time we, her and I were sitting at a Starbucks and this guy was asking her what's on her arm. And she was just so uncomfortable by it because it was this complete stranger asking her about literally the traumas she's gone through and why they're on her arm. And I, I was like, it just made me think of having an eating disorder. Like, yes, my body was emaciated, but I could cover it up if I wanted to. I could wear multiple layers and like people could see that my face was gone, but nobody could see my body. And it's just this way of telling these short experiences and short stories of these people and how people are just coping, like how they are just going on with their life and coping and how whatever way they can. And then I realized like a lot of my poetry is about that. And it's just about how we are more connected based on our, the way that we suppress our feelings and suppress what we don't want everyone on the outside to see, because we're, again, we're, we're kind of conditioned to think that everything is okay. And I used to actually work at Starbucks. So when people would come in and I'd ask how their day's going, if they would say, oh, I'm not really having a good day. I would always say, thank you for telling me. Thank you for being a real human and being humble enough to say and admit that you're not having a good day. Because by just saying you're good or you're fine, like you're not good or you're fine. Like Things are happening in all of our lives all the time. Just be, once you're honest with yourself, you're honest to a complete stranger, you can start healing that. And so I think yes. poetry for me was a way for me to heal. And although I wasn't sharing it with a lot of people at first, it was a way for me to at least get those thoughts on paper. And then as I felt more comfortable with accepting where I was, then being able to share it with more people in a book um, on different social media sites, on different podcasts. And, and just getting that out there. And so I think that that's how poetry kind of came in to be the way that it, my, my type of art to encompass how I was feeling. Well, you're a very thoughtful person. Do you journal? I mean, do you write things down or do you use a little dictaphone thing? Uh, when you have a thought? So I used to use one of those. And then when I got an iPhone, um, I would start dictating into my phone. And actually that's what I do now. Um, I never, I don't necessarily journal as much as I should, um, but I'm also the type of person, like I always have so much in my head all the time. So I don't force myself to write if I feel it, then I start writing. Cause it's one of those things, like for me, it's cathartic and I don't necessarily need to get it out for somebody else. Like it's really just my way of expressing myself. But I also, I paint and I, I just started painting again last week and it's been years. I think it's been like three or four years since I've painted. 
And it's the same thing with my poetry. Like part, I, I do like grand schemes of color and then I tape off random words and then I paint the words onto a canvas because however I'm feeling, I put it into color onto, onto a piece of art and it's just become like, I love expressing myself that way. And then something I love about acrylic painting on canvas is you can always repaint over it. And the more layers of paint you have, it cracks and it makes it look completely different. It gives you, it gives it texture. And I think that's when you're writing, especially, but also when you're painting, like texture is a human, like you are so much texture. There's so much about you that needs to come through. So you can mess up or it could come out some way that you don't anticipate it to come out and you can repaint over it and it just builds these layers just like a human has all these layers and so I just connect with art in those kinds of ways like and then I've also kind of um I picked up during COVID I would only take pictures of nature like flowers that were blooming or random things that like trees. I love trees. Um, I just think there's something so special about trees. <laughs> and my whole entire feed went from just like being happy and doing all these things and quotes to just like pictures of flowers and trees, because I was like, there's so much that people are missing because they're not paying attention to what's in front of them and what's natural. And that's something we all have in common. We all have while we don't all have access to technology, we all have access to outside but we don't get outside of it. And so I was bringing that natural beauty in or onto the screen. And um, to get back to your question, sorry, <laughs> I was like so long-winded. Um, I, for the most part, keep everything in my head. Um, and then when I feel the need, I just put it like, if there's something that just pops up in my head, I, and I feel like it, it has to be out, then I'll write it down right then. Otherwise, sometimes it just stays there. And then it'll more like little lines or repetition of something will keep coming up in my head and I'll be like, okay, that's my brain telling me I need to put it down now. Um, but another example is I knew I wanted to write that children's book about uh, cancer and I wrote it. I wrote, I think it's a 21 page book and I wrote it while I was driving to the gym in five minutes. <laughs> like huh. it just came to me, wow. spoke it into my phone as I was driving. And then I sent it to a coworker of mine and she's like, oh, wow. When did you write this? I was like, I just wrote it right now, driving to the gym. She's like, how did you do it? I was like, I don't know. Like it comes to me. And if, if I just feel it, like I have to get it out. Otherwise it just kind of sits there. I have like, I used to write on napkins. Like I was, I just had paper everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So have you thought about putting the hunger to the hunger podcast? I have not actually, which is kind of funny because I keep thinking about like, how else can I move this along? And I never thought that. This would be the best podcast. And, you know, a lot of people do poetry. Uh, I just spoke with Karina Cantus. She is a writer. She does all of her, you know, pontifications on 
a podcast. This would be pretty good as a podcast. So I, I encourage you to think about that. And if you need help, reach out. We can help you out there. Thank you. Uh, do you have a favorite out of your book of poetry or are they all your babies? So there's actually one and I believe, oh, I don't have my book in front of me. I'm actually at my boyfriend's house. So I, oh, I don't know what section it's in. I think it's in the trigger section. It's either in the trigger or it's in um, uh, social, the social problems one, but it, it's all you need is a pen. That's how it starts. All you need is a pen. All you need is a pen. That's my means to an end. Like Marx, I will reach the masses. Use this mic to create a passage from one to one till it's begun. Let's be real and take, oh, let, let's be real and use empirical fact. Take, oh. oh my God, I don't even, I can't think of it off the top of my head. I wrote it when I was buying a car. <laughs> my dad was in the room like I had found this car and then I was like oh my gosh I was like dad I'll be right back and I at the time I didn't have an iPhone and I had to find a piece of paper and I just wrote it down and I used Marx and Durkheim and like these random sociologists that like came to my head at, as I was like I'm able to just go and buy this car like I had just crashed I had totaled a car that I had just paid off. And I was like, how fortunate am I to be in a situation where I can have a father co-sign on a brand new car? And I was like, this is so unfair. And so I, it just came to my head. And I was like, I, and I'll always remember where I was when I wrote it. And I was like, I was buying a car. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. And at one point I, I had, I was going to do a one woman show and that piece actually opened up the show because I thought it was so powerful for so many reasons and um I need to find it you know what let me look it up on my phone because I know I have it on my phone <laughs> just like it's one of those things that as I said it things pop into my head and I can't I can't oh here it is all I need is a pen. That's my means to an end. Like Marx, I will reach the masses. Use this mic to create a passage from one to one till it's begun. Let's be real and use empirical fact to put the human race back on the map. Take it from Durkheim, who was first for his time to realize living without togetherness meant ending one's life. And I want to say I wrote that like eight years ago <laughs> at a <Yeah>. car membership. <laughs> So, so you, you've stated you've got enough poetry for two more books, but do you continue to write poetry down and keep, uh, yeah, keep I compiling do. those books? Yeah, I, I do continue to write poetry. Um, it was challenging during COVID because I figured, you know, there's nothing else going on. So while I'm teaching full-time online, why don't I get my master's and also get my uh, my administrative credentials? So I was busy writing all of those papers, like 300 pages of 
who knows what about the education system. And I had this idea actually the other night, I was like, I should write a book about the educational system from the standpoint of, um, I mean, it's been done before 100%, but from my lens of special education, privilege and parents and what that looks like, because it's, it's insane. It's so crazy to me, like the things that I've seen in a short time at the school I've been at for only six years. And I just, I'm baffled. I'm baffled by so many things. And I'm also not baffled by so many <laughs> things because it's just, it's disgusting. It's at the end of the day, it's certain things that happen are disturbing on so many levels. And I'm just like, I'm part of the problem because I'm in the system. And I, I just write about it. Like a lot of my poetry is based on these ideas I have um, when it comes, sorry, I'm looking for this piece that I wrote recently about like coworkers, but it's just, yeah, it's just strange. Like the things that people don't see on the outside because they're not part of the system that they only put their kids in the system and those that don't yeah. have institutional know-how and know how certain things work or do know how certain things work and don't want to be part of it. So they just let their kids go through versus those who do know what it, what goes on, have the power privilege and money and figure out other ways to get a heads up on all these things or, you know, figure out other ways to navigate and again, continue to stratify society. Right. And that's, that's really what we have to do is struggle to find the means and the ways to change those dis-structures, you know, these, these things that tear us down and, you know, the systematic approach that a lot of people have, I was approached by the librarian that works close to the children in the school and all of these individuals. I'm not embarrassed to say that she came up to me and said, Hey, you got to stop trying to change things. We've been doing it 40 years this way and it's not going to change. Well, that's the reason it's not going to change. Everybody's letting them say it's not going to change. Well, there's a lot of, people out there, I, I see this involvement process starting and they're trying to figure out how to get that control back from those systematic approaches. So it's, it's one of those things, I encourage you to write about it, you know, because if people are not aware of the inner workings, they're not aware that it needs to change. And that just goes back to the status quo again. So what do you have planned for Rachel in the future? Um, I don't know, that's, that's a big question. Um, I would absolutely like, I want to, publish the entire children's series um, and kind of, I've always wanted to be a motivational speaker, but kind of maybe like workshop with different schools to 
twofold. One with these tough questions and holds kind of um, professional development and uh, like workshops for the students as a con like a consultation to have these conversations explain why it's super important because it is changing in the sense that a lot of families and parents aren't they're not having these conversations with their kids but they're expecting them to be done at school which is a lot more to put on the teachers but unfortunately it is what's happening like we we can't change there's no way to change that because it's being changed kind of by the parents already in in this weird kind of way so gently expressing to educational staff like this is a thing yes it's not necessarily your job but if you don't if you don't at least like breach the subject then there's going to be more issues that are happening in the classroom more behavioral problems more kids that are going to start to be diagnosed with depression because they don't feel like they have anybody to, to turn to um so do speak more speaking on those kinds of subjects. Um, I, I would love, absolutely love to like host children's programs on TV. Like that's, um, I'm, I know they brought it back, but I'm always like, I would love to bring back Reading Rainbow and like do all oh, yeah. more of those, um, those read stories that are actually changing the, the conversation, um, there's been so many, so much more emphasis on multiculturalism and reading more stories about multiculturalism, um, acceptance of all different individuals, people's uniqueness. Um, there's a book called Pink is for Girls, like all those kinds of things that encompass like where society is and having people understand, especially the younger generation, like be who you are, that's okay. And like, I would love to host children's programs like that. Um, just keep writing, um, fighting the good fight and not losing who I am because I know that I'm supposed to be talking about stuff like this. And I, as I said, this is where I feel most alive. So I, I, I can't stop doing it because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I used to always say like, I'm supposed to be in the classroom working with these kids that have IEPs and doing special ed. And I'm, I just feel it now. Like I'm more in this place where I, I need to talk about things more and be more in the public eye, have these conversations with people. However that looks, I don't know, but I, I like to ruffle the feathers. I like to not stir the pot per se, but I like to get people talking. And yeah. I, I just feel like I'm still at the stage in my life where I can connect with older people and I can connect with younger people. And I need to just go with it because there's a reason why I still look like I may have just graduated college even though I've been in the workforce for 15 years. So. <laughs> well that's that's positive energy, you know, and when you carry that, people take notice of that. So you've got high energy and a lot of good knowledge and you've got that background that tells you how to deliver it. So 
I, I encourage podcasting. I, I think you would be great at it. And uh, I'll, I'll stop my podcasting. <laughs> Rachel, do you have a call to action for our listeners? Call to action. Um, I just want to say like, easier said than done, love yourself. Like only you at the end of the day know what drives you, what gets you to this point of energy, what gives you that passion and that fire. And don't let people discourage you because you were put on this earth for a reason. And if you're feeling something, you're feeling it because you were meant to do it. So do it. And yes, it's hard because we live in a society where there are all these hoops to jump through, but do what you need to do to get through the day in order for you to create this path to get to your, to make your dreams a reality because you just need to do that. Like I, as I said, I sat on that book for 10 years and I've always had all this to say, and it has now been about 12 years and I'm finally saying it. And I'm like, I'm always like, well, I'm not good at social media. So that's not going to be part of my platform, which is part of everyone's platform at this point. But I know I'm good at speaking. So I'd rather do the podcast than post on social media. And then things will like, I'm a firm believer that when you follow what you're supposed to be doing and follow your heart, it will all come together. So what I want to tell the listeners is follow your heart because only you know what you have the capacity for and people who are telling you otherwise are doing that from a place of jealousy, envy, fear of their own failure. So just follow who you are and what you want because you are the only thing you actually have at the end of the day. That's powerful. Thank you. Now, The Hunger. How can people get this great book? So it's on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. Um, my name is Rachel Freeman and it's called The Hunger. Uh, you can also look up some of my poetry. As I said, I don't have a big following, but not yet. I don't have a big following yet. I'm going to just preface that. Um, little Girl Big Words, L-I-L-G-R-L-B-I-G-W-R-D-S. It's a mouthful. So Little Girl Big Words. I also, from time to time, will post on Little Girl Big App, which was, I used to take, like everyone in LA, I would take pictures of all my food. And then I realized that was feeding into the eating disorder. So I was like, mm, let's not do that. But now I just chronicle like yesterday, I love the Seahawks. So when I went to the Seahawks bar, I took a picture of my nachos. Um, uh, I don't obsess over that anymore, but they, they do go hand in hand, obviously. Little Girl Big App, Little Girl Big Words. I have um, a blog that needs to be updated, but it, I do a lot of like food review. I have done a lot of food reviews on it. Uh, littlegirlbigapp.com. And also my personal one, my personal account is one love 128. It's on private, but if you say that you heard my, um, you heard my interview on this podcast, then I can definitely accept you. Just DM me. I it's on private for personal reasons. And so I just need 
for my privacy to keep it like that. But as long as you just say, Hey, I heard your podcast. I I'd like to follow you. That's totally fine. I will click. Okay. And we can be friends. <laughs> Great. Well, Rachel, you're an awesome person. You do wonderful things. I love your writing. Thank you for being part of our podcast on the Dead America podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon wherever you may be.